You're listening to Precinct 444, a podcast network from the National Law Enforcement Museum. Today we're bringing you an episode from Law and Disorder, where we dive into the world of true crime stories with memorable cases that have lasting effects for law enforcement. On February 28, 1993, what began with the ATF serving a warrant for illegal firearms to members of a religious sect outside of Waco, Texas, turned into a deadly shootout. The initial raid led to 51 days of intense negotiations, false promises, stalemate, and ultimately ended with the compound in flames and 76 dead. In our last episode of Law and Disorder, we talked about the Branch Davidians, the investigation into their leader David Koresh, and we concluded with the ATF Special Response Team's delivery of that warrant to Mount Carmel. And then in our last part, we heard from retired Special Agent Blake Boatler, who is one of the ATF's SRT agents. And we went through not only what it was like to be in Waco on that day, but also the ways that ATF and other federal agencies turned the lessons of Waco into tangible change with new training initiatives and practices. Today, we are bringing you part three of our coverage of Waco. In today's episode of Law and Disorder, we're going to take you through the key moments of that 51-day siege in the desert outside of Waco. We'll discuss what was going on inside the compound with the Branch Davidians and outside the compound with investigators, and really sum up why this was such an important event that happened 30 years ago. This episode is brought to you by Off-Duty Management. Off-Duty Management is dedicated to supporting and protecting law enforcement agencies, their officers, and community vendors by offering a fully customizable, centrally administered, no-cost solution that manages all aspects of off-duty programs and keeps agencies in full control, mitigating their risk and liability. You can learn more about them at offdutymanagement.com. By the evening of February 29th, both federal agents and the Branch Davidians are finding themselves licking their wounds. There are fatalities that are impossible to ignore, and an FBI hostage negotiation team moves in and establishes contact with Koresh. He's inside the compound, and he's injured. He agrees to allow federal agents to come in and collect their dead and wounded. And at this time, Koresh still has lines of communication with members of the local media, but it isn't long until that access is cut. By the second day of the standoff, the FBI restricts the compound's phone lines so that he can only accept calls with the negotiation team, which is led by Special Agent Jeff Jamar of the San Antonio Field Office. The negotiator's main objective is to convince David Koresh to exit the compound and surrender himself to the authorities. Naturally, Koresh refuses to leave the compound willingly, so negotiators are scrambling to strike a deal with the sect's leader. Koresh wants attention, media coverage, time to address the general public. On March 1st, he strikes up a deal with a negotiator who arranges to give Koresh a national audience for an address that he wants to make if he agrees to lead his people out of the compound immediately after it airs. Koresh agrees, and on the following day, the Christian Broadcasting Network airs a 57-minute address recorded by Koresh. Koresh had agreed to surrender following the broadcast, but however, a few hours after the broadcast, it's instead fellow Branch Davidian Steve Schneider who exits the compound. He's acting as Koresh's lieutenant. He informs negotiators that Koresh is refusing to surrender. He explained to FBI agents that God had instructed Koresh to wait. Federal agents are furious and now find themselves back at square one. FBI tactical and on-scene commanders move tanks closer to the compound and negotiators urge patience. 
For negotiators, it was imperative that the tactical teams outside of the compound not act too rashly and counteract any progress that had been made to gain the trust of Branch Davidians, and more specifically, David Koresh. But not only did negotiators find it pertinent that David Koresh surrender to authorities, they also wanted the safety of the innocent Branch Davidians that were not listed on any of the ATF's warrants. More specifically, they wanted to protect the children within the compound. There were 38 total children within the compound, 21 belonged to Branch Davidian members, and the other 17 were the biological children of David Koresh. After the violence that erupted during the ATF's initial raid, it became especially important to federal agents that the children in the compound be guaranteed safety, and negotiators eagerly pressed to evacuate at least the children from the compound. On March 5th, it was a nine-year-old girl who was the last of 21 children to be released from the compound. David Koresh's biological children remained in the compound until the siege concluded, despite negotiators' consistent pleas with the religious leader to release them. On March 7th, just over a week into the siege, Koresh and negotiators continued to find themselves at a standstill. Koresh requests that he be allowed to address the public once more, and even tells a negotiator that he is Christ, come to judge the world, and that his judgment would begin with overthrowing the United States of America. And he wants to tell the American public this himself. McLennan County Sheriff Jack Harwell phones Koresh and said he's asked the FBI to send milk into the compound. After milk is sent in, David Koresh sends out a videotape of himself and some of his wives and the children. Out of concern that the tape would create more positive public relations for Koresh, FBI officials decide not to release the tape and just hold on to it. But the longer the siege carries on, the more frustrated both negotiators and the Branch Davidians become. On March 9th, FBI tactical commanders temporarily cut the power to the compound in an attempt to encourage Branch Davidians to come out, without consulting negotiators. Understandably frustrated by the lack of power and continued lack of access to communication with anyone outside of FBI negotiators, the Branch Davidians hang a banner outside of the compound that reads, God help us, we want the press. This is captured by news cameras that are covering the siege outside of the compound. And on March 12th, a significant development takes place in Washington that will affect the situation at Waco. Janet Reno is sworn in as the 78th U.S. Attorney General. She becomes the first woman to hold this position, which oversees the U.S. Justice Department and its over 95,000 employees, which include the special agents of the FBI. But meanwhile in Waco, investigators are interviewing a few Branch Davidians who have surrendered from the compound. One such Davidian informs the FBI that Koresh has a total hold on his followers inside the compound and expresses the fear that they will not surrender willingly. And a critical decision is made later that evening when the FBI decides to permanently cut the electricity to the compound. By the next day, Branch Davidians are becoming harder and harder to get into contact with. Investigators begin to rely on bugs that had been placed within the compound by FBI agents to gain a better idea of what was happening within Mount Carmel's walls. The bugs pick up on an irate David Koresh, upset by the slashing of power and phone lines. On March 13th, Koresh is overheard on one of the bugs, admitting suspicion and threatening retaliation, stating, Someone is stabbing me in the back. Gonna go up and blow their heads off. 
Outside the compound, investigators are trying to gain a better understanding of what had been going on within the confines of Mount Carmel by interviewing both adults who had surrendered themselves and the 21 children who had been evacuated from the compound. The children were being interviewed by a child psychologist who noticed a curious trend in her conversation with these youngest members of the religious sect. The children who had been released from the compound shared with investigators that the older children that had been released were acting as if they had a, quote, shared group secret, that they weren't telling the younger children or the adult investigators interviewing them. The psychologist determines from interviews with all of these children involved that there are major themes concerning a sense of unusual sexual practices involving the young girls of the sect, and they also had this sense that the children believed, quote, there is going to be an absolute explosive end to these children's families. And on March 15th, investigators secure a meeting with two Branch Davidians who remained inside the compound. Steve Schneider, this is David Koresh's lieutenant, and Wayne Martin. They agreed to meet outside the compound with McLennan County Sheriff Hartwell and FBI negotiator Byron Sage to discuss the situation and hopefully the potential for surrender. But the meeting really leads nowhere. David Koresh continues both his refusal to leave the compound and to release the children remaining inside. The Branch Davidians and federal agents retreat to their separate corners once more. Investigators continue to listen into the compound through the FBI's bugs, and one of these bugs picks up on a conversation between Koresh and Snyder. They're discussing the gunfight with ATF. The pair describe Davidians firing through windows and walls of the compound, and Koresh goes so far as to laugh about seeing an ATF agent, quote, in the corner all slumped, and his head blew up. He is quoted saying, He shouldn't have been standing in my door, trying to come in, but what am I going to do? Let him come in? On March 17th, one of the wounded ATF agents files a lawsuit alleging that the Waco media tipped off the Branch Davidians about the raid that took place on February 28th, and the siege creeps into its 17th day. Investigators attempt to secure a second meeting with Koresh's lieutenant, Steve Schneider, but he refuses. He informs investigators that Koresh is angry. He is angry because of the new presence of armored vehicles that are nearing the compound, and also because he does not agree with the media statements that were made by the ATF concerning the raid. Koresh says to a negotiator, quote, We're saying your commanders are a threat. You're trying to push aside where we're coming from. Therefore, we can't communicate. I'm willing to give and take. I made the first move by sending out the kids. You have continued to digress on the things that you promise. You keep yourselves in ignorance. You don't understand. And the negotiator responds, acknowledging Koresh's frustration with the lack of media contact, stating, I do understand, but he warns, we're running out of patience. Steve Schneider delivers a difficult blow to investigators when he informs negotiators that just before the power was cut to the compound permanently, there were 20 to 30 branch Davidians who were prepared to surrender, but they changed their minds once the power was cut. However, five days later, seven additional adults from the sect will surrender to authorities and leave the compound. A few hours after the surrender, FBI tanks bulldoze sect cars that are parked in front of Mount Carmel belonging to Branch Davidians. A chief FBI negotiator warns tactical command leaders that they are once again answering positive Davidian actions with aggressive negative reactions. But conditions were becoming more grim inside the compound. 
Two water tanks that held drinking water for the Branch Davidians had been damaged during the initial firefight with ATF. This drastically shortened the Branch Davidians' potable water supply, and the longer the siege went on, the more bare the cupboards became. At this point in the siege, with no power, the Branch Davidians remaining within the compound were primarily surviving on stockpiled military MRE rations, or meal-ready-to-eat rations, and rainwater. In another attempt to coax Branch Davidians from the compound, command leaders continued to utilize sleep deprivation and peace disturbance techniques by blasting music and other sounds over loudspeakers and flooding light toward the compound. They hoped this would drive David Koresh and his followers so insane that they would evacuate the compound. But by now, the siege has lasted 22 days, and there appears to be no immediate end in sight. Negotiators send a memo to FBI headquarters that endorses a new plan. This plan would emphasize the use of tear gas as a method to force Branch Davidians from the compound. The memo requests that tear gas be introduced into the building gradually, rather than just thrown in, but this plan is met by skepticism from the newly minted Attorney General Janet Reno. On March 23rd, Assistant U.S. Attorney Bill Johnston writes to Attorney General Reno, concerned that the FBI is destroying evidence at Waco and jeopardizing any criminal case that could be brought against David Koresh and the Branch Davidians with their attempts to smoke the Branch Davidians out of their compound. But later that day in Waco, Branch Davidian Livingston Fagan, a British national, becomes the last of 14 adults to surrender to authorities. The siege has now gone on for over a month. On March 29th, David Koresh speaks to negotiators for the first time in four days, and he's also met by a defense attorney who has been hired by the religious leader's concerned mother. Defense attorney Dick DeGuren, from Houston, arrives in Waco for the first time and meets with his client. He will return to Waco four more times, accompanied by an additional attorney, a man named Jack Zimmerman, who was hired to represent Koresh's lieutenant, Steve Schneider. But beyond the perimeter around Mount Carmel, there's excitement brewing. The FBI's siege on Mount Carmel has been subject of local, state, and national news coverage since the shootout occurred on February 28th, and while most Americans were content to watch the case develop from the comfort of their couches at home, some made the trip to the desert outside of Waco to watch the siege play out in person. One such person was an Army veteran named Timothy McVeigh. While he's there, he's interviewed by a journalism student, and he claims that the incident at Waco is the start of government repression. He sells bumper stickers emblazoned with anti-government slogans, including, Fear the government that fears your gun. Two years later, McVeigh would bomb the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, which housed an ATF field office. It was the deadliest act of terrorism in U.S. history until September 11, 2001, and it remains the deadliest attack of domestic terrorism in the United States. Since he began meeting with a lawyer, negotiators were primarily communicating with David Koresh through his defense attorney, Dick DeGuren. On April 4th, after what would be the final meeting with his client, DeGuren and Steve Schneider's attorney Zimmerman inform investigators that the Branch Davidians have agreed to surrender so long as they are allowed to participate in a week-long observance of Passover before turning themselves in. Exhausted, irritated, and hoping that this isn't another false promise, investigators agree and the Branch Davidians begin their observance of Passover on April 5th. Everything seems to be progressing fairly quietly until April 9th, when Koresh sends a letter out of the compound, which he has signed as Yahweh Koresh. 
This warns readers of coming earthquakes, disasters, and judgment. He proclaims that the end of days is rapidly approaching, and the next day he sends a second letter from the compound, signed as Yahweh Koresh, which was his name for God, and his letter states, Do not hurt my lamb. Investigators know that time is of the essence. FBI leaders once again press Attorney General Reno to approve the gas assault on the compound. A.G. Reno is reluctant to sign and responds to agents asking, Why now? Why not wait? And she requests more information. The Attorney General fears that the use of tear gas will only lead to further tragedy in the case. And while willing to look at additional information on the utilization of tear gas in the plan, she urges agents to continue their exercise of patience. But back in Waco, David Koresh is making it kind of difficult to be patient. He assures his lawyer, Dick DeGuren, that he will surrender to authorities, but only after he writes his message about his interpretation of the seven seals from the Book of Revelation. An excerpt of this letter reads, I want the people of this generation to be saved. I am working night and day to complete my final work of the writing out of these seals. I thank my father. He has finally granted me the chance to do this. It will bring new light and hope to many, and they will not have to deal with me in this person. They will not have to deal with me, the person. I will demand the first manuscript of the seals be given to you. Many scholars and religious leaders will wish to have copies for examination. I will keep a copy with me. As soon as I can see that people like Jim Tambor and Phil Arnold have a copy, these are two prominent religious leaders at the time, I will come out and then you can do your thing with this beast. The FBI immediately felt that the letter was just another ruse used by Koresh to stall the investigation, but they called in psychologist Murray Myron of Syracuse University to understand Koresh's mental state a little bit better. Myron confirmed from examining this letter and previous letters from Koresh that Koresh exhibited, quote, all the hallmarks of rampant paranoia, and confirmed investigators' fears that the end of this siege was likely far off. Department of Justice leaders continued to mull over the FBI's request to use tear gas at Waco. On April 15th, Deputy Secretary Robert Altman writes a memo to U.S. Secretary Lloyd Benson, whose agency oversees the ATF. He reports that negotiations are stalled with Branch Davidians and that the FBI is pushing the gas assault plan as, quote, they don't believe it's worth waiting. Altman replies expressing doubt that A.G. Reno would approve the gas plan and concludes, quote, the risks of a tragedy are there, and if the FBI waits indefinitely, Mr. Koresh will eventually concede. But the investigators on the ground are growing impatient. Initially, on April 16th, A.G. Reno vetoes the FBI's plan to use gas at the compound at Waco and requests that the FBI submit a briefing book to justify the use of tear gas on the compound. Ultimately, the FBI was able to make its case for the use of tear gas, and on April 17th, Attorney General Reno approves the tear gas plan. FBI bugs capture Branch Davidians talking of keeping fire trucks away from the compound. Someone is overheard saying they couldn't even bring in the fire truck, to which Steve Schneider, one of Koresh's lieutenants, replies, because they couldn't even get near us. It is likely that Branch Davidians suspect that the next part of the FBI's plan includes the use of tear gas, which is highly flammable. By April 18th, an FBI bug picks up a Branch Davidian asking Steve Schneider, what's the latest? And Schneider replies, it may be scary. 
The man adds, you always wanted to be a charcoal briquette. And someone responds, there's nothing like a good fire to bring us to Earth. Schneider said he looked forward to what he'd do to federal agents as the prophecies were being fulfilled, adding, wait until I get my scrawny hands on your scrawny neck. I'm coming back, and when I do, you aren't going to know where you're going to be able to hide. Schneider is asked about Koresh's progress by investigators on the manuscript about his seven signs, and Schneider replies that he's seen no progress. And Koresh is further irritated, giving a warning to negotiators over the phone as a vintage El Camino is crushed by a tank. He states, quote, you're going to place this day in the history books as one of the saddest days in the world. And he accuses the FBI of destroying evidence, covering up for supposed crimes that were committed by the ATF, quote, doing wrong before God, before man. A negotiator tells Koresh that he seems to have no concern for anyone but himself. And a chief negotiator confronts a tactical commander with concerns that the gas plan will not work. This negotiator later stated that, quote, I didn't think it would drive the Davidians from that building, and I was afraid it would put us in an untenable position where they were moving forward and we couldn't retreat from. Finally, it's dawn on April 19th. And FBI tanks begin to ram into the building and creating holes where they will spray tear gas into the compound. This was to be done gradually over two days and increase the pressure within the building to hopefully get the Branch Davidians to leave without harming them. But shortly after gas is being administered, FBI snipers report seeing gunfire coming from the compound. Knowing that the Branch Davidians are heavily armed, the FBI escalates the releasing of the tear gas instead of following the gradual insertion plan. But no rounds are ever fired by a federal agent on April 19th. Hours after the tear gas insertion begins, no Branch Davidians had yet to leave the building. It was discovered that many Branch Davidians were holed up in a concrete block room known as the bunker within the compound, or they were donning gas masks. But FBI bugs begin to capture Branch Davidians discussing the idea of spreading fuel on Koresh's orders just before noon. And the FBI bugs pick up this discussion about starting fires. And lo and behold, at 12.07 p.m., the compound catches on fire in at least three places. The fires were set deliberately by Branch Davidians, and the blaze was broadcast live on televisions across the country by camera crews that had been stationed outside the compound for weeks. After the event, a survivor of the fire named Graham Craddock would testify that he heard a fellow sect member yell, light the fire, and saw someone pour fuel on hay bales that were in the chapel. This is one of the locations where the initial three fires were set. But this fire grows until the entire Mount Carmel building is engulfed in flames. The Waco skyline is obscured by plumes of thick black smoke coming from the compound. And as mentioned on FBI bugs by Branch Davidians, the compound was too far for any fire department to effectively make it to the compound in time and extinguish the flames. Fire trucks do eventually arrive to the compound at 1243, but ultimately it's too late. Mount Carmel burns for less than an hour, and by 12.55 p.m., the entire building is leveled. The fire kills 76 of the occupants of the compound, including David Koresh, his lieutenant Steve Schneider, and at least 17 children. After examining the remains of the compound, law enforcement officially declares David Koresh to be dead at about 1.45 p.m. 
It is later discovered that Koresh, Schneider, and a few of the other followers died of close-range gunshot wounds before their bodies were engulfed into the flames of the building. Of the remaining Branch Davidians that day, nine adults survived the fire, including one woman named Ruth Riddle, who brought out a computer disk that contained Koresh's unfinished 28-page manuscript about the Seven Seals. Waco was ultimately seen as a tragic disaster on all sides. The catastrophic loss of life, both with the loss of federal agents during the initial raid and ultimately the incredibly violent deaths of the Branch Davidians on that final day, created a visceral memory for law enforcement officers, government officials, and the American public. Internal investigations were done by federal agencies involved, and the response to the incident changed how dynamic entry would be handled in cases in the future. Training programs were also changed for federal agents. To this day, ATF agents are required to read a U.S. Department of Treasury blue book on the Waco siege, and additional training requirements were put in place to better handle hostage negotiation tactics, especially in cases involving heavy artillery like the kinds of weapons present in the Branch Davidians arsenal. Waco continues to be a topic of great controversy in American law enforcement history and American history as a whole. It is a subject that leaves many Americans still wondering how things could have happened differently. But the truth remains that the lessons that we learned in the wake of Waco's tragedy have helped to shape the way that federal law enforcement is done to this day and will continue to shape federal law enforcement well into the future. Thank you for tuning in to part three of our coverage of Waco here on Law and Disorder. You can find previous episodes of this and other shows on the Precinct 444 network wherever you get your podcasts. And remember that today's episode is sponsored by Off-Duty Management. Be sure to check them out online at offdutymanagement.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon here at The Precinct. Please subscribe to Precinct 444 on your favorite podcasting platform to stay connected and to receive our latest content as soon as it drops. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions, comments, and feedback to precinct444 at nleomf.org. You can help us make our content even better. The National Law Enforcement Museum is located at 444 East Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., and is dedicated to telling the story of American law enforcement. We expand and enrich the relationship between law enforcement and the community through educational journeys, immersive exhibitions, and insightful programs. Find us online at lawenforcementmuseum.org and stay tuned for more podcast content from Precinct 444. Until next time, stay safe. We'll see you at the precinct. Mm-hmm.